The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So it's really nice to be here tonight. This talk is entitled, The Buddha, Difficult Conversations and Covering Over with Grass. Not the kind that I used to smoke. Throughout all the suttas, the Buddha taught how to deal with disputes among the Sangha of monks. And his teachings remain very powerfully relevant to us today. We have an argument culture. Anybody who's tuned in recently to the political world that we're experiencing knows this. There's a right or wrong aspect to virtually everything we do. And strangely enough, we don't teach communication in our schools. We don't even teach it in professional schools, such as law schools or medical schools or education schools where people are learning to teach. We teach something we call communications, It's really public relations and and marketing where we're teaching people to convince and argue and promote a product or promote a person or change your mind about something. A very culturally strange version of communication. This story begins with once upon a time. And once upon a time really means once beyond time. Or more accurately, perhaps even it means once in another dimension of time. We're really another, but also we hold time as one dimensional. If we held space the same way we hold time, we would all be flat. We easily hold space as three-dimensional, but we hold time as only this dimension on the clock. It only moves forward in clock time. So once upon a time, I must have been 10, 11, 12 years old, and I spent my summers in a place that I'm sure all of you have heard of. It's a high vacation spot in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains called Pickens County, South Carolina. A little town called Central. If you haven't been there, you haven't missed a whole lot. There was one flashing red light and the Southern Railway ran right down by the highway through the main part of town. And my grandmama lived on the banks of the Southern Railway and next door to her lived my great-grandpa, whom I call Grandpa, in this little town of Central. The Southern Railroad cut its way through the red clay hills of Appalachia and planted kudzu vines along those hills to keep them from washing away. Kudzu was a plant imported from Japan where it was used in salads. Don't eat it. I tried it and it grows very fast. We used to go out in the backyard and chop it back to the side of the red clay hill 
And before we could get back up to the house, it was growing up and grabbing our feet. I remember one particular Sunday night quite well. It was towards the end of the summer. We were sitting around a big oak table in the main room of my great-grandpa's four-room house. It had coal running water and an indoor toilet, so it was pretty advanced. And in the middle of this room was this big round oak table. And one side was a pump organ. He went around Pickens County and led singing schools in the summer after the crops were laid in and before they were harvested. And he would line out the hymns. That means he would sing a line and the people would sing the line back because they didn't have enough hymnals and they didn't know how to read music. And he would play on that pump organ sometimes when I was a kid and I would sit out on the front porch on the porch swing. It was an old wooden swing that had been painted once maybe before I was born and it had rusty chains that went up into the tongue and groove ceiling that might have been painted once but well before I was born. And when I swang on it, it creaked and rocked and I was always certain that the screws were going to come out of the ceiling. They never did. And sometimes when I was sitting on that swing, which was my favorite spot in the whole world, Grandpa, he'd play that pump organ. and He'd play all his old favorite hymns, Beulah Land and Shall We Gather at the River and When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. But his favorite was always farther along. In the other corner of that big room was a little single bed with a straw tick mattress and that was his bed and beside it was a white plastic GE radio on which he listened to one radio program every week and he listened to it on Sunday morning. It came on only at church time to my confusion. It was called a Vimurb Quartet. Vimurb was something that would make you feel good, make you healthy, take care of all your problems. No telling what it had in it but they had quite a quartet and they sang on Sunday morning. Every Saturday night, my grandmama, while she had asked Grandpa, you going to church in the morning, Pa? He'd say, no. That was it. They really had good conflict resolution skills. (laughs) Sunday dinner was always fried chicken. And I was a closet vegetarian and didn't know what a vegetarian was and had a hard time eating meat. And this particular Sunday evening, Sunday evening supper, was always leftover fried chicken, except for my grandpa. He had a supper not to be believed. It was a glass of buttermilk into which he crumbled some cornbread with a side of collard greens cooked in fat back. If he hadn't have been my hero for many reasons, it would have been for eating that supper. That particular Sunday night, I looked at my plate and I saw another piece of chicken and I just couldn't abide eating it. I remember just the day before being out in the backyard feeding those chickens and they were peck, peck, pecking all around and my grandmama, she had come out and grabbed one and went and broke its neck and chopped off its head and tied it by its feet up on the clothesline so it would drip dry. They don't actually come in those plastic packages. And I just couldn't eat it. And I said to her, 
Mama, which is what I called her, I just, I can't eat this chicken tonight. There was a little silence because there's a rhythm to speaking in Pickens County. And she said, Danny, I promised your mom I was going to fatten you up this summer. You're still skinny as a rail. Now hush up and eat your chicken. Somehow or another, my grandpa, who didn't believe in talking much at all, when he did talk, it was to tell a story, which was pretty rare, and sitting to the dinner table was for eating. It wasn't for talking. But he looks over at my mama and he says, Hush up, woman, and let the boy follow his gumption. Well, boy, that lit a fire under her good. She put her hands on her hips, looked over at him and said, what do you mean talking about following your gumption? Well, the only one around here is allowed to follow any gumption is you. Why, if I was to follow my gumption, I wouldn't be a cooking and a cleaning and a washing up after you. Now, hush up, boy, and eat your chicken. And I did. <laughs> but it kind of curdled my stomach and sat badly, and I just didn't feel real good. And afterwards, I said to her, Do I have to go to church tonight, Grandma? And to my surprise, she said no. Maybe she was feeling a little guilty about being so hard on me. Maybe it was because it was my last night of the summer because my folks were coming to get me the next morning to go back to school. I went out on the porch and I looked over at that swing and I just couldn't bring myself to get in it. I was feeling just a little green and I sat down on the front steps. By and by, Grandpa came out after rustling around to get himself a chew of tobacco. He had tobacco leaves twisted, aged first, and then twisted and rolled up and shoved in every drawer and every shift robe cabinet in the house. Smelled like a tobacco curing barn. And he would come out and sit in this big oak rocking chair with a leather back and a leather seat that was sprung exactly to fit him. And he would rock and he would rock and he would chew and he would spit. Now, talking about spitting, I'm sure, is not your most pleasant conversation, but that's because you never met my grandpa. When he got just the right trajectory in his rock, he would rock back. And he would let fly and that brown spittle would go across the porch, across that clean swept dirt yard that my grandmama, she swept at least twice a day, across the border of flocks flowers, across the drainage ditch, across the black asphalt two lane road that I used to walk in in the summertime in my bare feet when the car got nice and gushy so I could get a good coat on the bottom of my feet and that way I could run through the woods without hurting myself onto the sidewalk on the other side why if there had been an Olympic event of spitting Grandpa had won the gold medal every time but that night he come out and I was sitting on the steps instead of in my swing and he said to me if in ye let her get to you boy you're a goner. I didn't exactly know what he meant, but it was enough to scratch my head over. And he said, look at that swing over there, boy. Why, it ain't no swing unless you're in it. Swing it. Look at my old rocking chair there. 
It ain't no rocking chair unless I'm a sitting in it a rocking. In this porch. Well, it ain't no porch unless and you're in the swing a swinging and I'm in the rocking chair a rocking. And look at this night. This night here, boy. It ain't no night unless and you're in the swing swinging and I'm in the rocking chair rocking on this porch. Now go on over there and swing. And I did. And it was one of those special nights that occur in the late summer in South Carolina in the hills. The cicadas were calling. The hot heat had left a cool dampness in the air. The trees were rustling in the wind. The birds were cooing as they found their place to go to sleep. I didn't know that it was the last time I would be on that porch with him. And by and by, the the screen door opened and out came my grandmama and she said, I heard all this nonsense you was talking to the boy. I'm going to have to take care of you one of these days. And she stomped off and headed on down to go to church. And he looks over at me with his wicked grin on his face and said, and she can't be mad without you and me. And we sat on this beautiful night and I swang and he rocked. And by and by a question formed in my mind and I said, Grandpa, what did you mean to Mama about letting me follow my gumption? What does it mean to follow your gumption? And he rocked a while and chewed and spit and got his chew work down where he could talk a little bit. He says, well, son, I'm not rightly sure. He says, my old granny Durham told me it was like this. She said, it's like a chicken's got two wings and we're like one of them chickens. And one of them wings, why it's right here on this porch, right here. We got to take care of that wing and that other wing why, it's hard to put any words around. It has to do with you swinging in the swing and me rocking in the porch in this night. But I know once I followed my gumption. And it's how come you're here. Now that perked my ears up real good. Because a story from him was something. And a story about me, why that was something else. But y'all are going to have to wait a few minutes. Because I'm here to talk about the Buddha, difficult conversations and covering over with grass. And what does that have to do with following your gumption? Recently at work, I faced a major problem. I do mediations for the federal court and I'm on staff there at the federal court. And we do a lot of Americans with Disability Act mediations. And there's a particular lawyer who represents the plaintiffs, the people who bring the suits, the disabled people, who when I do metta meditation would be a good, difficult person for me. And recently I have used him in that category. We were supposed to have a a mediation on Wednesday of last week. And I mediated down here in San Jose on Monday and it was a long, hard Mediation and on Tuesday I was pretty wiped out. And I called him in the morning and he said, giving a rather spurious reason, said, I want to cancel the mediation. 
And I had read his mediation statement and the defendant's mediation statement. And they were in strong disagreement about what changes should be made in this particular building to make it accessible to disabled people. And that's generally not a good state for those kind of cases to go to mediation. They need to have that worked out between their experts. And their experts had not met. So I said to him, well, that makes sense to me since your experts haven't met. I agree with you. We should postpone it. And I'll call the defense lawyer. I've got a call schedule with her at 2 o'clock and get back to you. So I called her. And when I spoke to her, she said, confidentially, you can't tell the plaintiff's lawyer yet, we've changed our position. And we're not going to fight the, the changes that he wants. We're going to make them all but a couple. And I think we can work those out tomorrow in the mediation. And so, no, I don't want to postpone it. So I had a problem. Mediation is a voluntary process. Both sides have to agree. So I call the plaintiff's lawyer back. He wasn't in his office. He had left. And I left a message for him with his secretary saying it was urgent that I had to get him and the defense lawyer on the phone because she didn't want to postpone the mediation. And we needed to work out what to do. Forty-five minutes went by. He didn't call back. I called and said, what's going on? Spoken to his secretary many times and she said, oh, he called and uh, he left a message for you. And I said, he left a message for me with you? Why didn't he just call me? And she sort of muttered a lame excuse and I could tell she was embarrassed. And I said, well, what was the message? And she said, the message was the mediation has been canceled. I'm not coming. And I said, hmm. The point of my message, as you know, was to have him call me so that I could call the defense lawyer and get everybody together and figure that out. He can't just not call me. He has to call me. Please tell him to call me. Another 45 minutes goes by, no call. I call back, same thing. I didn't see it at the time, but a big silver hook came swinging through my office and grabbed me right under the front teeth and just started reeling me in. Anger at being treated disrespectfully began to arise in me. I don't know if any of you have ever had a similar experience. Probably I'm the only one. In the Samagana Sutta, the beginning of that sutta is the story about the death of Nagantha Naraputta, who was a famous Jain teacher. And when he died, his disciples fell into two warring camps. And the sutta says, they quarreled and brawled and were deep in disputes, stabbing each other with verbal daggers, saying to each other, your way is wrong. My way is right. I am consistent. You are inconsistent. What should have been said first, you said last. What should have been said last, you said first. What you had so carefully thought up has been turned inside out. Your assertion has been shown up. You are refuted. Go and learn better or disentangle yourself if you can. Sound familiar? 
Have you ever been in an argument like that? Your way is wrong. My way is right. I'm consistent. You're inconsistent. Ananda, who was the Buddha's brother and one of his, uh, our cousin, I'm sorry, and one of his uh, closest disciples, came to him with a story worried that the Sangha of Buddhist monks would fall into a similar dispute when the Buddha died. And in response, the Buddha taught the six roots of conflict or the six roots of dispute. Anger and resentment, contempt and insolence, enviousness and avariciousness, deceit and fraud, evil wishes and wrong view, And this last one is my favorite. Adhering to our own views, holding on to them tenaciously and relinquishing them with difficulty. I, of course, never suffer from any of these. But I did notice in my dispute with this plaintiff's lawyer, whom I'll call Mr. James, I was feeling angry and resentful. I had a wrong view. I was making it be all about me. What he did was contemptuous and insolence in my opinion. And he had been deceitful and fraudulent with me in trying to manipulate, postponing the mediation for some reason that I still didn't know. And he definitely was tenacious in holding on to his view that the mediation should be canceled. So, there they were. The six roots of dispute right in a little phone call about scheduling a mediation. And I, of course, was hooked by that nice silver hook. And I had failed to heed one of the Buddha's most basic instructions. Having slain what? He was asked, does one sleep soundly? Having slain what? Does one not sorrow? What is the one thing, O Gotama, whose killing you approve? Having slain anger, one sleeps soundly. Having slain anger, one does not sorrow. The killing of anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip. This is the killing the noble ones praise. For having slain that, one does not sorrow. The poisoned root and honeyed tip of anger definitely had me. So what do we do when disputes are present like that? When we're caught in the midst of conflict? When we've acted as I did, unskillfully, in getting angry and upset over what I perceived was disrespectful to me as a mediator for the court? First, we need to get the deeply fundamental connection between conflicts and dukkha. Dukkha, the dissatisfactoriness, the suffering that pervades all of our experience. The Buddha said that all the troubles and strife in the world, from little personal quarrels and families to great wars between nations and countries, arise fundamentally from tanha, our thirst, our desire for things to be the way we want them to be, for the sense pleasures. And I was definitely caught by my desire for Mr. James to be a certain way with me. 
and I was definitely caught by my aversion to the way he was. I didn't want him to be that way. So we need to see this fundamental connection between dukkha, between the arising of suffering because of our desire for things to be a certain way, and these six roots of dispute. And then somehow we need to shift our relationship to this particular dukkha of conflicts. And in our culture, that's hard to do. It's hard to do because we have such a negative view of disputes and conflicts. We avoid them. We accommodate people in order not to have a dispute. We fail to stand by ourselves and for that which we know works for us in order to keep the peace. And especially those of us who practice meditation and we're striving to be equanimous and generous and open-hearted and loving-kind, we sometimes just collapse and let somebody steamroller over us because we're avoiding disputes. Being caught in conflict is bad. If, however, conflict is totally connected with dukkha, the dissatisfactoriness that pervades all experience, what we're saying when we say that conflict is bad is that everything in life is bad. Because dukkha is everything in life that we can possibly experience. So we're resisting the life that is appearing before us and we're wanting life to be different than it is. We're wanting to change the very fabric and nature of life, which is impossible. We can't. So getting the connection between dukkha and conflicts and disputes requires us to look at the fact that they're inextricably entwined and our resistance to conflicts, our belief that they're bad and wrong, is essentially saying life is bad and wrong and that's not so smart. So let's look for a moment at the etymology of words that are more positive in terms of conflict. Good communication and real authentic connected conversation. What does the word communication really mean? It comes from a Latin word communicatus which means to impart share, literally to make common. So when I communicate effectively with you, I make common between us what is in my mind and heart to share with you. I listen to what's in your mind and heart to share with me and you make that common with me and there's a sharing of what is in us to give and receive. When it works like that, Everything is great. We love it. There's no conflict. But when it works the way it was for the disciples of Naraputa, where there's verbal stabbing, it's a little different. The word conversation has an even more fascinating etymology. It comes from two Latin words, con, meaning with or among, and verse, which means to turn about. So, conversation really means to turn about with another. To turn about. 
to turn about. So when I'm in true conversation with you, I turn about with you. I dance with you. I listen to you. I change. You listen to me. You change. So, we get the connection between dukkha and conflict. And we look more deeply into what communication really is. And then, thirdly, we need to learn to reframe what we hold a conflict conversation to be. We're more likely to say, I avoid conflict, I hate conflict, or let me listen inside my head while you're talking until you be quiet and then I'll tell you what's in my head because I'm not going to listen to you because what I'm saying is right and what you're saying, why should I hear that? That's how we generally frame conversation. The Buddha had, as far as I can get so far, eight conversations that frame conflict quite differently. And I don't have time tonight to talk about all eight of them, but I am going to talk about three of them. And just so you won't wonder, I'll give you the names that I've given to all eight of them. The first is the I want what I want conversation. The second one is the right wrong conversation. Then there's the three pathways of truthfulness conversation. The open to input conversation the I'm hooked conversation, the wise view conversation, the cordiality conversation, and the middle way conversation. The first three of those I'm going to talk about tonight and they help us to prepare and train our minds to be more skillful in conflicts. The middle three help us when we're caught in a conflict, when the six roots of dispute have arisen, And we see them either internally or externally and we're caught in a conflict. And the last two, the cordiality conversation and the middle way conversation, help us when we're clear of conflict, when the six roots of dispute have not arisen, either internally or externally, they help us to maintain a practice so that we can stay in a place of equanimity. So, the I want what I want conversation. This should already be familiar to you just by its title. But it actually comes from the Mahadukha Kanda Sutta. Boy, I really worked hard to say that. It translates as the greater discourse on the mass of suffering sutta. And in this sutta, some of the Buddha's disciples were getting ready to go on alms rounds to get their meal for the day. And it was still too early to go on these rounds. So they decided to visit with some uh, wandering students of some other teachers. And they're hanging out just in conversation with these monks who followed other teachers. And the monks said, Tell us, what's the difference between the Buddha's teachings on sense pleasures and our teacher's teachings on sense pleasures? And then they proceeded to tell the Buddha's monks 
what they thought the Buddha's teachings were. And the monks didn't respond either positively or negatively to these monks' description of the Buddha's teachings. But instead, after they had gotten their meal and gone on alms rounds, they went back to the Buddha and asked him to explain the difference. And the distinction that the Buddha gave was that he was the only teacher who focused on what is the gratification from sense pleasures, what is the danger of sense pleasures, and what is the escape from sense pleasures. He said, no other teacher focuses on that aspect. That's what I do. And he said, here's what the gratification is. The gratification from sense pleasures arises through the five sense doors. The forms that we can see by eye, the sounds that we know by ear, the odors that we know by our nose, the taste that we know by our tongue, and the tangible objects that we can feel with our body. And he says, those that are wished for, desired, agreeable, likable, connected with sense desire. In other words, everything. There's nothing that we can know that we don't know through those five sense doors. So, the gratification from sense pleasures comes through us through all of our sense organs. It is our experience. It is not the sense pleasures themselves that are wrong. It is our tanha, he taught, our thirst, our desire for them, our desire to have the things we want and our desire not to have the things we don't want. That's the danger. And because of that desire going either way, we want the pleasure, we want to avoid the pain, we try to make a life that isn't real. Because dukkha is everything. We have both the pleasure and the pain. We cannot have a life of just pleasure and no pain. But we sure try hard to have that. And it's in that desire, in that effort, that we create dukkha. And his examples of that suffering cover everything we could do in life. But he particularly focused on things around work. And he says, we work really hard. And if no property comes to us while we work, strive, make an effort to support ourselves, we worry and grieve, becoming distraught and lamenting that our work is in vain. Likewise, if property does come to us while we work, strive and make an effort to support ourselves, we experience pain and grief in protecting that property. Sound familiar? It comes either way. And he goes on to say that since pleasures, this attraction, the tanha, the thirst that we have for sense pleasures, is the cause of kings quarreling with kings, nobles with nobles, Brahmins with Brahmins, householders with householders, mother quarrels with son, son with mother, father with son, son with father, brother with brother, brother with sister, sister with brother, in other words, everybody. And here in their quarrels, brawls and disputes, they attack each other with fists, clods, sticks or knives. This is where all the conflict comes from. 
And then he said how we, re- how we escape from sense pleasures is when we learn not to avoid sense pleasures because we couldn't see, hear, taste, smell, touch. That's the only way we could avoid them. But we can learn to remove the desire, the attraction, the attachment to things being the way we want them to be and not being the way we don't want them to be. That's the practice of meditation. That's the practice of mindfulness. So when we face a conflict, like I did with this lawyer, Mr. James, the first place to look is where am I wanting what I want and not wanting what I don't want? That's the place I'm hooked first. I want you to be a certain way in conversation. I want you, if you're my spouse, to be a certain way when I'm around you. I don't want you to be another way. I want my neighbors to do things a certain way. I want the people who are driving in their cars on the freeway to drive in a certain way. We have a whole list of things that we want to be a certain way. We're trying vainly to control what is uncontrollable. And from that space, we are easily hooked into conflict. And the second conversation, the right-wrong conversation, is told in the Kanti Sutta. And there the Buddha was engaged in conversation with a large number of Brahmins. And there was a young 16-year-old Brahmin student named Kapithaka. And he was already known as a master of the Vedas. And he asked the Buddha a very pointed question. Master Gotama, he said, in regard to the ancient Brahmic hymns that have come to the definite, I'm sorry, in regard to the ancient Brahmic hymns that have come down through oral transmission and in the scriptural collections, the Brahmins come to the definite conclusion Only this is true. Anything else is wrong. What does Master Gotama say about this? So get the flavor of this. The Buddha is sitting having a discussion with all these Brahman scholars. And they believe that only the Hindu Vedas are true and nothing else is true. And this 16-year-old is putting the question right to the Buddha and saying, let's cut through all this chit-chat we've been having and this nice conversation about the differences and distinctions. The Brahmins believe that they're right and everything you're saying is wrong. What do you have to say? The Buddha then took Kapithaka through a series of questions where he asked him, does any living Brahmin, can any living Brahmin say from his own experience that all the Vedas are true? No. Can any Brahman teacher going back seven generations, have they been able to say from their own personal experience that the Vedas were true? No. How about the seers who are said to have written the Vedas? Could they say? No. And he said, so, Kapithaka, all the Brahmins living 
going back seven generations and the seers who are said to have written the Vedas, they're like a row of blind men, one leading the other, knowing not where they go. And he said there are five things that have to do with our beliefs about one way is right and another way is wrong. And those five things can only turn out two different ways. And these are the way we verify things that we believe are right and things that we believe are wrong. Either by faith, by approval by people that we respect, by tradition. My grandparents did it this way. We reason it out. We think about it. Or we reflect on our own experience. And regardless of which of those five we apply, our belief turns out to be either true or false. That's the only two things that it could be. So, regardless of whether I say that uh, Toyotas are the best car on faith, or because uh, I believe the advertisements, or because my father drove Toyotas, and it's the tradition in my family, or because I've studied the repair records and I've really looked at the way they're built and I know that that's so, or I've driven Toyotas all my life and I really have a good experience with them. Either way, any basis that I give for my belief that Toyotas are the best car, it's either true or false. And so the Buddha said, the wise person looking at this situation sees if you desire to honor the truth as a result of following this process of examination, you cannot come to the definite conclusion about anything. Only this is true. Anything else is wrong. We cannot. Why? Because any such belief is based on reasons that are not capable of certainty. Instead, a wise person who desires to honor the truth only says, My faith is thus. But I cannot come to the definite conclusion, Only this is true. Anything else is wrong. Would that we could be that way when we're in an argument with our spouse or our brother or sister or best friend. When I'm right and she's wrong. And I am definitely certain that I'm right. Yet the Buddha says, a wise person, when looking at the reality of the way world, the world works, we cannot come to the conclusion about anything that it's absolutely, certainly one way and everything else is wrong. So the last conversation that I'll talk about tonight is the three pathways of truthfulness. The Buddha taught his son Rahula, when one is not ashamed to tell a deliberate lie, there is no evil, I say, that one would not do. If I am willing to tell a deliberate lie, the Buddha said, then I'm willing to do any kind of evil. And he said, how do you practice and reflect on your relationship to truth? 
you ask yourself in meditation, would this action that I wish to do with my body, with speech, or with my thoughts, with my mind, lead to my affliction, the affliction of others, or the affliction of both? If the action is unwholesome in body, speech, or mind, then we shouldn't do it. Or if we've already done it, we should stop. If it's wholesome in body, speech, and mind, then we can abide happy and glad. So a three-part test. We have in our culture a saying that actions speak louder than words. The Buddha is saying that it's not just our actions, it's not just our words, it's also our thoughts. And we can create harm in any of those three ways. So in reflecting on what my true relationship to truth is, it's essential for me to guard my words, guard my thoughts, and guard my bodily actions. Only by reflecting on those three will I fully distinguish my relationship to truth. So, we think about the I want what I want conversation. My belief that I can have pleasure and avoid pain. That I can have things a certain way and not another way. We reflect on our relationship to truth conversation and we reflect on the right-wrong conversation. Those are skillful ways that we can learn to deal with conflict. I swang and he rocked for a while. And then he said, well, I was in love once and she is the prettiest woman in Pickens, Greenville, Oconee, O'Ree, Sumter, Anderson counties. Only his problem was she is a Methodist and why we's Baptist and never the twain should meet. And I'd go a courting, a spooning is what we called it, and I'd drive my horse and buggy over to her house and once her pa found out I was a Baptist and my cousin was the Baptist preacher, why he'd run me off with his shotgun every time I come over there. But her cousin was a good friend of my sister's and so we'd pass notes back and forth. And in one of them notes, I found out that her pa had found her an old Methodist farmer from up in O'Ree County and he was going to marry her off. And it nigh about broke my heart. And come the Saturday of her wedding, I decided I was going to go invited or not. And I took myself a bath even though I didn't particularly need one and put on a clean white shirt and I hitched my horse to my buggy and I rode over to that Methodist church and when I got there it was already started and I could hear that Methodist preacher in there preaching a good stem winder probably about the evils of being a Baptist. And something come over me it did and next thing I knowed I had unhitched my horse from that buggy and I had climbed up on its back, bareback and I had rode that horse right straight down the middle aisle of that church right up to the front and I held out my hand and I said, I come to get you. 
And my life was right there in that moment. I didn't know whether she was going to turn and run away from me. I didn't know whether her pa had his shotgun under the front pew of the church. I didn't know whether that old Methodist farmer was going to clobber me off the horse. Everybody in the church, while their mouths were open so big, they could catch every fly in Pickens County. And it seemed forever until she looked up at me with the biggest, sweetest smile that I ever saw in my whole life and stuck up her hand. And I pulled her up in front of me on that horse and I somehow backed that horse out of that church and I tipped my hat to her paw, I did. And we rode on over to my cousin's house and he hitched us up right then and there. And about that time I heard my neighbor's our neighbor's car, Mr. Center, I always wondered how come he went to church so much because I didn't know how to spell his name until I was a little older. He brought my grandmama home and I realized I hadn't gone and packed like she had told me to. And I hopped down off the porch and, Night, Grandpa, I said, and night back at you, he said. And as I said, that was the last time I was to be on that porch. The next summers I got a summer job and after that another summer job and then I was off in college and coming back to Pickens County just didn't quite suit my growing hippie image. And one day while I was in law school, the phone rings and it's my mama on the phone and she says, why grandpa, he's gone home. And I said, what happened? I knew that Grandma, she had put him in the nursing home up in Six Mile. That's not a place. It, it is a place. It's a town. And it was just a one-story building. And I asked my mother what had happened. And she said, well, you know, they wouldn't let him chew tobacco there at the nursing home. And he kept telling them he was 98 years old and he wanted to chew tobacco. He could chew tobacco. And one night... He crawled out the window and jumped to the ground and broke both his wrists and both his ankles. And that was it. And I thought of my grandma putting him in there and I thought of what she had said that night and I was angry at her. Conflict arose within me. And I went home and we went up to Pickens to the funeral. And they had a big new... Baptist church and they no longer had a pump organ in the church they had a Wurlitzer electric and they had a big crowd of people all these people who had been in his singing schools or whose grandparents had been in his singing schools and they said all the right words and they sang all the right hymns but they didn't have the rhythm of the hills and I was sitting between my mama and my grandmother and I was sidling away from my grandma because I was mad. And by and by, the back door of the church opened, and in come Miss Bird Montgomery. Now, she is a town character, and she could get away with anything because her pa had fought with Lee in the war between the states, and she had status in Central. And she made the flowers arrangements every Sunday. And she brought them in whenever she wanted it. She brought them in on Miss Bird time, and... and if it was right in the middle of the 
preacher's sermon, she brought them in and plopped them right down and walked out. If it was in the beginning of the service, she brought them in then. And if it was right in the invitational hymn at the end, she brought them in then and that was it. Well, I figured she was bringing in some flowers, but to my surprise, she walked over to that organ and sat down and she pulled out a few stops and pushed a few pedals and she started singing his favorite. Farther along. Farther along, we'll know all about it. Farther along, we'll understand why. Cheer up, my brothers and sisters. Live in the sunshine. We'll understand it all by and by. And I knew, I knew that my grandpa had died just like he taught me to live, following his gumption. In the Samagama Sutta, the Buddha taught about different kinds of set ways to settle disputes. And the last one he called covering over with grass. He said, when we are quarreling, brawling, and deep in disputes, we have said and done many things that are improper, unskillful. And he encouraged us to meet together and then have a wise companion or teacher or a facilitator, a mediator in modern terms. And after a time of allowing people to say what they need to say as skillfully as possible, the leader of one side of the dispute should stand up, arrange her clothing, raise her hands and place her palms together and confess for the good of the group and her own good that in the midst of this dispute, her group said and did many improper and unskillful things and then call for the group to agree to cover over those offenses with grass. May we all practice these powerful conflict resolution conversations to become more skillful in dealing with conflicts. And may the grass grow strong and tall. Thank you very much.